I invite you to stand and uh, turn in your Bibles, tap in your device to Jude, and let me read for you verses 17 through 23. Jude 17 through 23. We read these words of Jude to Christians. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. Well, again, I say good morning. And I ask a question of you. Are you comfortable? You look adequately dressed this morning. You look dressed for the, the weather as it is. I can assume that most of you have eaten something so that your stomach won't overly growl during the service. And if you haven't eaten yet, you have plans to do so at some point. That was by your choice. You all arrived in a vehicle of some sort, I imagine. I didn't see any horses and buggies out there. Didn't notice that anyone had uh, been hitchhiking or had walked in order to be a part of this service. Three years ago this month, our sanctuary was hit by a tornado. Since then, things have been repaired and painted. It's been updated. It's all very nice. We are blessed to be in this church, this facility, and we are comfortable. I walked in this morning and the air was on. Why is the air on? We put in new thermostats, and it automatically knew it was cold, and so it turned on the heater so that you all wouldn't be cold, except for a few of you who bring your parkas every week. Hopefully, you were able to open your Bible at some point this morning or a Bible app, read something of the Word of God, because most households have multiple Bibles, and if you don't, you can go online and read multiple versions of the Bible. Perhaps you stream some inspirational music on some electronic device. All the amenities that we have, the blessings of technology that keep us comfortable. But I wonder with all these blessings and all these comforts, and I've only named just a few, have we forgotten why we are here? And by here, I do not simply mean at church this morning. I mean, why are we here? Why are we left on this sin-infested, evil-minded planet called Earth? 
Why are you here? Why has God in his goodness, God in his sovereignty, God in his providence determined to leave you and me here in this hour? To make a living? To build up a a retirement plan? To live out a, a retirement plan? May I remind you that we are on a mission If you've been saved, you have not been saved to be meek in the sense of uh, squeamish or mousy. You have been called on a mission. You are called like a special ops force that's been brought together, briefed on a task. You are being trained, prepared, equipped. You have been transported from one place to another to be in this place right now. And let me tell you something about Northwest Arkansas that you may not know. We are behind enemy lines. That's where God has dropped us, behind enemy lines. But it's not simply a mission. The Bible, we refer to it as a co-mission. It's a joint task force only we have the best weapon available because we have the Lord Jesus Christ on our side we have a mission with the one who is mighty the one who is powerful the one who's intent on completing this mission to the glory of God We need to be reminded when we are here in all of our comfort that we are truly at war, engaged in a battle, a battle for the hearts and the minds and the eternal souls of people. Some of them live right next door to you. Some of them are in your family. Some of them you work with. Some of them you have not met yet, but you will. There's nothing inherently wrong with the blessings of God. They are not given to us, however, so that we would find perpetual rest in them. I've made it. I'm going to coast. Why? Because our perpetual rest is going to be found where? In a place called heaven. And may I remind you what makes heaven heaven is just one thing. One person. Jesus Christ is there. Everything else is icing on the proverbial cake. But for now, you and I are called to a transformation and rescue mission. And while the worldly-minded folks, those worldlings, they fear and they strategize, they, they, they meet up with other earthly powers as they vie for global dominance. Believers are engaged in an even more intense warfare, one with far greater ramifications than whether the world becomes one, uh, one global economy or we stay sovereign states. The war that we are in is far greater than the present concerns of our government. This is not to say there's no place for thought and involvement in these, but it is to say that for we who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there are more pressing matters than politics and more pressing matters than social media. There's more pressing matters than the status of our economy, 
Did you wake up this morning thanking the Lord that he had saved you from spiritual blindness? Did you really wake up this morning and say, God, thank you for saving my soul? Because if you hadn't, I mean, if he hasn't, then why are you here? Have you recognized that you've been transferred from the domain of Satan, from the domain of darkness, and you've been brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son, and he has tasked us with a mission to go to the highways and byways and bid others to come in, but we get ourselves wrapped up with ourselves and in the things of this world. But you've been set free from darkness. You've been set free from doom. You've been set free from all the the headaches and the heartaches of uh, 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 that sense of judgment that will come upon you if you do not know Jesus Christ. But having been set free from such things, are we now guilty of playing it relatively safe in some kind of of little bubble of supposed comforts while the people around us are being duped and deceived and dragged to an eternal death. One that we are supposed to realize we've been delivered from, not because we're so clever, not because we're so great looking, not because we have something to offer God, not because we have such great strength. But do you know why you were saved? You were saved because and only because of the unmerited grace of God shown to you through Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is the war that we are engaged in presently. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that this is a war. Jude says it's a war, but the Apostle Paul reminds us of this in those very familiar words of Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Think of this if you are sitting here in a military briefing room, and I am the spokesman this morning for our general, and here is what the general has given to us this day. And he says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now, I love those words and you've heard them before. Let me give you what I would say is a very literal reading from this text, from the Greek, from this text. It reads this way, as to the rest, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God for your being able to stand against the schemes and methodologies of the devil. Because we have not the wrestling with flesh and blood, but with principalities, with authorities, with world rulers of the darkness of this age, and with spiritual things of the evil in the heavenly supernatural places. Because of this, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to resist in the day of the evil and having done all things to stand. 
I don't know what is a greater call to arms than that particular passage. That's a battle cry. That is a, a call to wake up and to be engaged in a battle, a warfare. Now, most of us, I don't think, like to think in those terms. But you are engaged in the battle if you are in Christ. There's no permission given for believers to sit back and coast comfortably into the kingdom. I think of, of Joshua and Caleb, and you recall that uh, at the end of, of the conquest of the, of the Holy Land, uh, at the end of that conquest, Caleb, 80 years old, goes to Joshua and says, you see the hill country out there full of all those enemies? Give me that land, and I will take it to the glory of God. 80-year-old man goes out, and he conquers the Judean hills for the glory of God. There's no time to coast. The time now is to occupy. The time now is to proclaim. And one of the ways, beloved, in which we are to, to, uh, to consider this is that we have been given divine orders to wrestle against all evil for the souls of others. And one of the ways in which the evil of our day manifests itself is in the form of all sorts of counterfeit, cheap knockoffs, and supposedly Christian practices, theologies, and ideologies, and philosophies, and every ism that you can think of, and every schism that can be propagated by false teachers. Do you realize that there are more false teachers than there are true teachers? You are going to be inundated with far more untruth as you walk through this world than you are with the truth, which is why we gather on Sundays to hear the truth and why you are encouraged to read every day the truth because you are inundated with so much falsehood. In our letter here of Jude, the church has been warned about the presence of apostates. There are false teachers who have crept in unnoticed to reveal the seriousness of all this, Jude informs the church of the Lord's past judgments on apostates. Just read what God has done to those who have falsely communicated the truth of God. What has he done to them? He's destroyed each and every one of them. So who are you to think that you, if you are an apostate, that you're going get to get away with this? And why would you want to have anything to do with an apostate? Why would you not want to make sure that you are under sound teaching? This brings us to verse 17, and there's been a shift, as we noted last week. He's been addressing the subject of apostates. What do they look like? What are their characteristics? What's the future uh, for such apostates? And he shifts now, and he's addressing the church. He's speaking to you and to me, as it were. In verses 17 through 23, I had you note last week that there are five exhortations. There are five imperatives, five commands from our commander. This is what we are to do. This ought to be part and parcel of what we live out in our lives within the church and in our private practice. Five must-dos that the church must do if we would rightly stand in the days of apostasy, in the days of faithless teaching. And we saw that last week, believers are called these five things to remember the words of the apostles, remember what they spoke, the words of faith, remember how they reminded us, hey, mockers will come. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God. 
We are to have mercy and compassion. I'm not sure why that should just be flowing along. Uh, we should have mercy or compassion, pity on those who are doubting the truth of God. We are to save others. Notice the verb there. You are to save others. We'll talk about that in a, in a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll talk about what does it mean for us to save others, snatching them out of the, the fire. And we are to have mercy on some who are living such diabolical lives, but we have mercy on them how? With fear because we don't want to be sucked into their false teaching. So last week, we considered the first of these commands, a call to remember those words that were spoken by the apostles, and specifically what they had to say, that if you are in the last days, hold on to your, your seat, because the mockers are coming, the false teachers are here, and they have much to say to ridicule believers about believing the word of God and believing that Christ will return, to reward those who believe on him, and to bring retribution upon the unbelieving. We're told that such people are ungodly, they're unbelieving, and they're already where? They're in the church. They're already teaching in the seminaries. They are already writing books that we could possibly read. And they're bestsellers in those Christian bookstores. Jude ends this call to remember the words of the apostles by giving yet another description of those apostates in verse 19. He says, these are those who want to separate. They cause divisions. They're worldly-minded. They're soulish. They're natural. And they simply do not have the spirit. Therefore, these persons are those who will constantly do this one thing. And here's a sign for you that's not directly mentioned that you need to remember. Anybody that wants to blur the line between truth and error is a false teacher. If they're in purposely trying to, to make gray out of that which is true, there is a problem. God's word, interestingly enough, tells us to avoid such men as these in 2 Timothy 3, 5. We are to, to recognize that there are those who hold to a form of godliness, and yet they deny the power of godliness. What is the power of godliness? It is a changed life, and we'll see that in a moment. Has your life been changed? There was a great question this morning brought to us by Brother Pat. What is your disposition when you think of gathering with the saints? Do you long to be where Christ says, I will be in the midst of them? If you do not have that, you are quenching the spirit at best, devoid of the spirit at worst, because God's people want to be where God is, and God is with his people. But how do we avoid such men as these? How do we flesh them out? How is the church to stand firm in these days of apostasy when the apostasy is, has creeped into the church? Well, in verses 20 through 23, we find four more of the commands to the church that you and I must know and practice if we would faithfully stand in the days of apostasy, which really means what? That we would agonize, we would contend earnestly for the truth, for the faith, which was once for all handed down to us. And so this morning we're going to consider not, you ready for this? I'm going to put it up there. Here's the second command, but we're not going to talk about it yet. The command is to keep yourselves in the love of God. But notice what Jude does. He tricks us. No, not really. He's building up, no pun intended. He wants to build up to this 
command. And so he gives these adverbial uh, uh, um, statements to, to tell us how we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God. And notice what they are there. Uh, it says, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit, this is how you will keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, we need to examine what does it mean to be building ourselves up on our most holy faith and what does it mean to be praying in the Holy Spirit, these adverbial participle phrases that describe to us how the church is to go about keeping herself in the love of God. We think the other way, don't we? Hey, guys, keep yourself in the love of God. Here's what the love of God means. This is what it means. Now, how do you do it? By building yourselves up in the most holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit. And Jude says, no, I want you to contemplate first how you're going to do it then I'm going to command you to do it. So he gives us this foundation, and that's what we're going to consider this morning. Now, one of the things that ought to capture your attention as we begin these verses here in, in verse 20 is that the construction of verse 20 is exactly like the construction of verse 17. Did you notice that? It says, but you beloved, exactly like verse 17. Now, this is, I've said it ad nauseum, so, but I'm going to say it again. If an author of scripture says something once, it's worth listening, considering. If he says it twice, hold on and really pay attention. And technically, although the construction's different, this is now the third time that Jude, in the first 20 verses, has used this little word, beloved. And he begins, if you notice, but you, beloved, is once again, he's making a definitive distinction. He wants you to know that there's to be a distinction between you and the false apostle or false, uh, the apostates, these false teachers. He's making a distinction between true believers in the church and those who have crept into the church. Remember that Jude has just finished saying that apostates are what? Apostates are those who are devoid of the Holy Spirit. In just a moment, Jude's going to say, but you, beloved, are those who are praying in the Holy Spirit. So there's this distinction that's being made, and we're going to examine this distinction in a moment. But you, he says, you have the Spirit of God. You will be praying in the Spirit of God. Jude is no longer focused on the apostates. He's turned his pen to you and to me, to believers, to ungodly sinners who yet have been now transformed by the blood of Christ. And he's making sure that we are not uh, identifying ourselves with those who are the apostates. But what does he say about us? Well, notice again, because he says it again, the beloved position. We have a beloved position. He begins by referring to believers as beloved, literally the most loved ones. Now, uh, you know, I had two children, and uh, gratefully, I say this tongue-in-cheek, I had a boy and a girl so that they couldn't say uh, which one of us do you love the most? Well, I love my my boy uh, as the boy the most, and I love my girl as the girl the most. I have no idea how Brett handles the situation. Right? Uh, I get around it a little bit with my grandchildren by saying this, because uh, Eddie will ask me, you know, do you love me the most? And I'll say, you are my most loved Eddie. 
and I'll tell uh, Mia, you are my most loved Mia. So as long as my kids don't name their kids the same, I'm set. But it means the most loved ones. I want to note with you that this is a title. This isn't just a Hallmarkian phrase that just goes into a greeting card. This is a title, it is a position that belongs to everyone who is trusted in the work and person of Jesus Christ, who is himself given the title of what? The beloved one. He is the beloved one. Recall that I told you last week that the word beloved is used 60 times in the New Testament. The first nine times it's used is with reference to Jesus Christ. That leaves 51 times, and every one of those 51 times it's used is with reference to those who have trusted Jesus Christ. Jesus is the great beloved of God, and all who have trusted in him are the beloved of God. We read in Mark 9, 7, again, that phrase, where that statement where the disciples heard on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, what the Father had spoken concerning the Son. And we read these words so often, they're, again, they, 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 they just, we just diminish them to a certain extent. What does it say? Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, the disciples. And a voice, so they heard something, came out of the cloud, and this is, this is what God had to say in that moment. I mean, we're so used to it. All the things that I would think the Father might want to say in this moment, this is what God the Father chose to say in the hearing of the disciples in that moment. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. When we read the statement of God the Father concerning the Son, this is my beloved Son, listen to him, we, think, we tend to think in sentimental terms. Oh, isn't it sweet how the Father loves the Son? Uh, isn't that way? We just think in, in some sentimental terms as though the, the Father has merely uttered some special term of affection. Well, it is a term of affection, but it's so much more than that. How do we know this? God speaks of Jesus as the beloved as an affirmation. An affirmation of what? That he is the sovereign king over all things. How do we know this? He has both the legal and divine right to be the final and full heir of David's throne. He is the beloved son. He is the son of sons. We call him the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's the son of sons. He's the the greatest. He's the highest. And he holds this position of being the full heir to David's throne. In the Old Testament, the term beloved was used of a particular son of David. David was given the Davidic covenant that said, your son, you know, one of your descendants will rule on your throne forever. And David has his first son and names him Solomon. Solomon was given, uh, well, let me read it for you. I'm getting ahead of myself. I love what scripture says. Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 through 25. This is after, of course, the death of the baby that uh, uh, because of the sin of David and Bathsheba, the baby had died. They got David and Bathsheba were married. And then it says, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went into her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son and he named him Solomon. Interesting. The Lord now the Lord, it says, loved him, loved Solomon 
and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he, Nathan the prophet, named him, that is Solomon, gave him the name what? Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. That phrase means the beloved of the Lord. That's the name God gave to Solomon. And I find it interesting that David and Bathsheba referred to or called uh, Solomon, gave him that name. That name means peaceable. Solomon means peaceable. As their previous sin had been dealt with by the Lord, they named their son. We are now at peace with God. However, the Lord says, Solomon, this is a special one. And he calls him beloved of Yahweh. The use of this title serves, uh, uh, this term serves as a title that identified Solomon as the legitimate heir to the, the Davidic throne. This is the same language now God is using to announce to his disciples. And he says, this is my beloved son. He's saying, behold your king. Here is the king. Here is the king of kings. This is my beloved one. Here is the legitimate heir to the throne. So the very first nine times the term beloved is used in the New Testament, it speaks to Jesus, but these last 51 times it speaks only of believers, and it speaks of us as what? As we are now the beloved because of Christ. We are the beloved in Christ. When God looks at us because of our faith in Christ, he sees us as beloved, as the beloved children of God. It's interesting that, that means we are what? We are co-heirs with Christ. He's going to sit on a throne. We sit on a throne. Consider what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3.21. Jesus said, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And so here's the idea. We will reign with Christ. He's the beloved king, and he has granted us this opportunity to reign with him as the beloved and so there's our beloved position let's note now these these adverbial phrases are the building up let's look at our building up point b after reaffirming our position and our possession as believers jude prepares his readers for the exhortation that will be found in verse 21 by first calling believers to two practices two things that we ought to be doing that enables us to fulfill the command to keep ourselves in the love of god and why do you need to keep yourself in the love of god you just follow the argument here why must the church keep itself in the love of god because that is our defense against apostasy. If we are not keeping ourselves in the love of God, we will fall from God. And so this is all meant to help us fulfill this command. And so he begins by saying, by building yourself up on your most holy faith. And this is one way then the church protects herself from the potential to fall away from the faith. It's by building ourselves up in this, the most holy faith. Now, the verb building there is used by, uh, used by Jude as epoikodomio. I know you all are glad to have heard that one in the Greek. It's a compound word. The reason why I say it is a compound word, epi meaning upon, oikos is house or dwelling, and domio is to build. And so it literally means, the verb literally means to build up or to build upon, add on to the house. In context, the idea is building upon something that's already built. 
adding to the foundation. It reminds me of Paul when he says to the Corinthians that, that the foundation is Christ and you're building upon that foundation either with wood, hay, and stubble or with precious stones and, and gold. This is the idea. We're adding on to the house. The kind of building up Jude has in mind is that of spiritual edification, of spiritual growth. The voice of the verb is active, meaning there is an expectation that believers must produce the action of building up ourselves. You and I have the responsibility of doing this. And we do it by the power of God, but it's not like we sit around, I'm going to wait until God kind of levitates me and makes me do something to build somebody else up. No, you are to be active in this. You are to say, how can I build up others in the most holy faith? But I get ahead of myself. Myself. This is a duty. It's a call of every believer. Further, it's in the present tense, meaning that you could translate it this way. You are to be building yourselves up and keep on building yourselves up and never stop building yourself up. And when you think you're tired of building yourself up, well, suck it up and keep building yourselves up. This is a perpetual building project for the church. And we're getting excited because we're getting near the end of, of our, our church mortgage here, and we've got to start making plans of what's going to happen next. Is the building going to go up somewhere? How, how are we going to do all of that? And there's going to be a building program. Well, you're already in a building program. And in fact, the reason why we have to consider an earthly building program is because we are engaged in a spiritual building program, and we want to see the spiritual building program become so profound that, well, we bust out of this place, right? There's a sort of contrast with Jude's use of this verb. Why? Because what are apostates busy doing? They're not building up. They're tearing down. They tear down the truth. They tear down the faith. They tear down the saints. They tear down the church. And now Jude says that's not the, the project of the beloved. The project of the beloved is to be building up. The apostates are busy tearing down. The beloved are called to zealously and continuously be uh, building up the faith and building up the faithful. We caught a glimpse of this in our study in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, this is what Paul said, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. And notice what he says there. You are already building up one another. You're adding to the foundation. But what does he say? Excel still more. Keep on doing it. That's what Jude is reminding us. Just what is it that believers are to be building on? Well, notice what the call to arms is. We're to be building up on what? Your most holy faith. Now, the word for holy means to be separate. The word holy means to be set apart, consecrated for God's use. It's I, I know that I am to live for God, that everything I have, my strength, my energy, my vitality is to go into seeing God glorified in my, in my personal life, in my, in my marriage with my children, in my job, in my church, in, my, in, in every aspect of my life. It's the idea that I am devoted entirely to God's use. The verb form of this word is, means to be sanctified. And the noun form of the verb is uh, to be a saint. So we are saints. We are the holy ones, the set-apart ones. But this one says the faith is holy, your most holy faith. The word for faith in the Greek means that which is believed upon. What do you believe? 
uh, again, in context, Jude is not speaking about the faith that is exercised primarily when we believe. We tend to use the word faith in that sense that I have faith in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. What Jude actually has in mind, he's speaking of that which we looked at in verse 3, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That is the substance of what you believe. It is, uh, uh, we have a, uh, uh, a couple of books we've used in the church. One's called uh, uh, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, big old thick book, and several of the men have gone through it. Now we have a new one that's been put out by MacArthur and, and uh, some of the master seminary folks called Biblical Doctrine. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's what we're talking about, the sum and substance of the truth and all the theology that flows out of that particular truth. And so we're called to uh, the, the, to build up in the faith speaks of growing in the knowledge and the practice of the doctrines of the word of God. Doctrine is not for just the preacher. It's not just for the elders or the deacons. Every one of you, I think it was R.C. Sproul who said, every one of you is a theologian. And the only question that you have to answer is, are you a good theologian? Well, you don't like where we're going with this. Or are you a bad theologian? Now, let me give you a little bit of an out. The question is, are you a good theologian or a bad theologian, right? You can be a simple theologian, and that's okay as long as your theology is good. That's the question. I can have faith like a child, and that's sufficient. If I'm a child, I need to grow up, okay? Okay, so the issue is there's a call here by Jude to advance and apply through continual learning of biblical doctrine. What, whatever you know now, praise the Lord. But now Jude says, go further, go higher, go faster into everything that you can learn about God. Such doctrines are called your most holy faith because it comes to us from our most holy God and from his most holy word in order to make us most holy. In other words, believers have a duty to be constantly building themselves up in the faith of adding to the provided foundation of Christ a glorious structure that brings glory to God. For those who do not like to put out effort, a sort of uh, lazy Christianity, such a call seems burdensome. I mean, I'm telling you, everyone in this room who professes Jesus Christ, you need to learn more about what you believe about Christ. And for some, you're like, oh, man. Why would some Christians become lazy in this? Because I go back because they're comfortable. As, as Dinesh reminded us, we tend towards comfort and safety. We forget that we are in a battle for the truth. We forget that we are to be increasingly str uh, uh, strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That we need to be doctrinally strong. This means that the church must have as her priority the proclamation of the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That Paul said to the Ephesian elders that I did not shrink away from proclaiming to you the whole counsel of God. I told you everything. I didn't. doesn't matter if you didn't want to hear it. I told it to you. Well, why? Beloved, our studies ought not to be focusing on how passages make us feel better but rather on what God has really said and how what God has said 
genuinely affects my behavior. Why is that important? Beloved, if we are not strong and solid in our knowledge of the word of God, then what happens? We become easy prey. We are easily duped by apostasy. While genuine believers are saved by grace, if they are not careful, they can be drawn away from that truth. They become ineffective proclaimers. I, I fear not so much if, if for our church that we would have apostates. I fear that we would have people who would be drawn away from what they've heard from others to, into a, a state of complacency where the enemy has made us not useful for the kingdom of God. We need to be reminded that we are to proclaim the truth. In Galatians 3.1, Paul calls this a bewitching, where believers who had begun their walk with Christ by faith alone were being duped into thinking, now I've got to add something to it. And we're talking about adding what? More knowledge of God and what he's done. The false teachers were saying, you've got to add your own works to it. And he calls it a bewitching. Interesting term for Halloween. This is why Paul began the letter to the Galatians with these very familiar words. He said, as we have said before, so now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be anathema. He is to be accursed. Because you cannot mix truth with error. Believers are to see to it that they are not duped into believing something that is not true and therefore propagating the lies of the apostates, however inadvertently. And the remedy for this is by being built up in the most holy faith, of being solidly grounded in the truth so that we will not be bewitched by the false teachings. If the church is to be protected from the effects of apostasy, if you and I would be, affected, uh, be protected from those effects, it will take the concerted effort of the body of Christ to be intentionally building ourselves up in the faith. What does it mean? Are you ready for this? It means to be reading and studying the word of God. How many, how many, how many times have you heard that in your life? Are you reading God's word? Yes? Then read more. Are you reading God's word? No? Get started. I'm challenging you to make sure that you are engaged in a vital, living, dynamic reading of God's word that is more than just reading. It is a communication vehicle for you and your God. That you stop in the midst of your reading and you say, God, thank you for this truth. Help me apply this particular this principle to my life. It means digging into the truth and, and in order to know it and to live it. And I ask you, how are you doing? When, when did you last get your hands dirty by digging into the word of God? Or are your hands clean because you prefer to be comfortable? How many calluses, spiritual calluses do you have because you've been going deeper and harder into God's word? You cannot build up others in the most holy faith if you are not building yourself up in the most holy faith. So where do we begin this morning? I challenge you if you are in God's word, delight in the word and excel still more. If you've been lax, get into the word and pray for the grace that it will become alive to you. We are to be growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus. To do anything less is to make oneself vulnerable to accept anything. Beloved, we cannot just take 
anything in. We are to examine it. As 1 Thessalonians 5.21 instructs us in the context of right teaching, in the context of him just saying, do not despise prophetic utterances. Make sure you're listening and hearing the word of God. The Apostle Paul says, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. So he says there may be things that you hear that are not worth holding on to, but hold on to that which is good. Remember again Paul's words to the Ephesians el- Ephesian elders. I know I read the, we read these words often, but let me point out something that has a bearing on this practice of building ourselves up. Notice in Acts 20, verses 29 to 32, the apostle Paul writing, to, or he's actually speaking to the, the elders, and he says, I know that after my departure... Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things and draw away the disciples after them. Now remember, we noted that Jesus referred to false teachers, false prophets as wolves, and so Paul's echoing that language, and he says they're going to come up from where? Not outside the church, but within the church, and what are they going to do? Speak perverse things, apostate things, For what end? To draw others away from the truth. Therefore, he says, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to what? Build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are holy, sanctified. It is likely that Paul had led many of the men that he was speaking to to Christ during his three-year stay at Ephesus. And he tells them that he's leaving. He says, I probably won't ever see you again. He's expecting to go to Jerusalem and die. And he says, he ends with these words. Note them again. I commend you to God. In other words, he says to these men, God will take care of you. God will teach you. God will strengthen you. And then he says that it is the word of God which is able to build you up. It is the word of God that has the ability to address every need of the heart and lead to a life that pleases God. It is the word of God that saves sinners. It is the word of God that sanctifies saints. It is the word of God that soothes sufferers. It is the word of God that satisfies scholars. This, beloved, is our most holy faith. We cannot know or even just assume that a man's teaching is correct because he's on the radio or has a a huge podcast following or even because he studied at a particular seminary. We are to take what is said and examine it up against Scripture every time. We are to be like the Bereans who, having received the word with great eagerness, examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. You need to, before we meet on Thursday, examine what I've been saying and see if these things are so. Beloved, it is scripture and scripture alone that serves as the final authority for all teaching. This is our most holy faith. This is the principle behind the reformer cry of sola scriptura, that the scriptures alone are the only and the final authority for seeking truth about God. In the words of Martin Luther, 
The doctrine of sola scriptura means, and I quote, what is asserted without scriptures or proven revelation may be held as an opinion, but, but need not be believed. Everything else is superfluous. It is God's word alone. And this being Reformation Sunday, as it was Martin Luther who sparked the Reformation when he nailed those 95 statements, those 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel on October 31st, 1517, so 505 years ago tomorrow. Let us consider this matter of sola scriptura described by Jude. What is Jude saying when he says the most holy faith? You can substitute the phrase sola scriptura. That's what we're talking about here. And one of the key distinctions between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism centers on the view of Scripture. In Roman Catholicism, it is believed that only the Pope and certain of those who have specialized in Scripture are able to accurately interpret the Bible. Because of this belief, the Catholic Church restricted the common people access to the Bible. In the, uh, in the old, old days, you didn't have a Bible. You sat under the teaching of those who the Pope said these people can interpret the Bible. And that included many of the priests. Do you realize that Martin Luther, upon entering the ministry, was trained as a Catholic priest? He was ordained a Catholic priest and yet had never read the scriptures. He didn't read the Bible until he earned his doctorate and was teaching at the University of Wittenberg. When he finally read the Bible, he exclaimed, and I quote, If I could have a Bible for my own, I would desire no other earthly treasure. And we treat it like what? Oh, it's on here. I maybe read it. I maybe not. And all he wanted was his own copy. How many of you have more than one copy available? For some 1,400 years of the church, Bibles were all written in Latin, a language that for most commoners, they couldn't read. Luther was so convinced that God's word was to be available to all the people that he began translating it into the vulgar language, this means common language, of German. This provoked the ire and wrath of the Catholic church because they understood something. If people actually read their Bibles, they would see all the things that were doing wrong. If they would actually read the Bibles, they would see how unbiblical we are being. And so, at the time of the Reformation, men like John Wycliffe and others who desired the scriptures to be written in the language of their own people, be they German, English, Dutch, or French, they would pay with their own lives for translating the scriptures into the common languages of the people. And yet, how often do we forget? Even today, the Catholic Church prefers that their followers allow the Pope and his official representatives to the, interpret the Bible for them. If you come up with a different interpretation, well, you're wrong. Listen to the Pope. Such a view stands in stark contrast with those noble-minded Bereans, does it not, who examined the scriptures daily to see if what was being taught to them was so. And they had such a confidence in the word of God that it was the full and final authoritative source of all revelation. It was the only standard by which teaching and conduct and faith and practice was to be appraised that that's what they went to. And this is where our comfort Christianity comes into play. It's a tragedy, I believe, how few believers have a Berean spirit. According to a number of surveys, less than 10% of so-called evangelical Christians 
can be regarded as being deeply committed to the word of God. One out of ten supposed Christians, only one has a deep commitment to the word of God. Sadly, many Christians simply do not know the basics of what the Bible teaches, and therefore uh, their behavior is not consistent and varies little from non-Christians. The majority of Christians do not know the Bible. They fail to examine the word of God daily or even weekly. And so they go to church. They hear what is taught in the pulpit. They read a book that is a bestseller among Christians. And they believe whatever they've heard. It must be so because so-and-so said it. And they never search the scriptures. Beloved, if we are to rightly know the God of the Bible, we must faithfully read and meditate on We need to develop the mindset of Psalm 119, verse 97, which says, Oh, how I love your law. How do I demonstrate that love? It is my meditation all the day. Now, some of our young people might like this, some of our older people are going to groan, but you know that word meditation, you could translate it regurgitation. The idea is the idea of, of you take it in and it has the idea of like of a cow chewing the cud and you know a cow has four stomachs right and they swallow it and it goes in and it gets some nutrients out and then they regurgitate it back up and they chew on it some more and they put it down in stomach number two and they regurgitate it yeah i love your face thank you and uh wow amazing that that that's the way we are to be beloved we must spend time in the word of god so that we have the best weapon we can have against apostasy and it's knowing that word of God. And as we'll see next week, it is by knowing the word of God more and more that we are enabled to keep ourselves in the love of God. I realize that calling you to read and to meditate on God's word is nothing new to you, but remember that the church is being called to arms. This is an all-hands-on-deck proposition. It's, it's, it's like saying we need to have everybody come. I mean, not everybody's here today. And there's, some people are sick and, and some people are traveling or whatever. But this is one of those things where Judah's saying, get everybody on board. This is the project of the church. This is the mission of the church. To know the word of God and to make the word of God known. To know God and to make him known. To know Christ and to make him known. And where do you begin that battle? You begin by knowing the word of God better, by building upon what, you're, what you know precept by precept, brick by brick upon the foundation that is granted to us when we first came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You're, you should be able to answer this question. Do I know more about Jesus this week than I did last week? And if you're not certain, then you're not digging enough you should be able to keep some sort of journal some sort of record so that at the end of the year you can say this is where i was a year ago here's where i am now are you keeping track of your spiritual growth let me give you a couple of interesting stats and i'm going to end with this and we'll put praying with the spirit next week with with the rest i got too excited about god's word now i'm going to share this because this isn't meant to guilt trip you But some of you are going to feel guilty. That's your fault. I want you to be stimulated. I want you to be provoked into spending more time in the word of God. Consider this. At an average person's reading speed, it takes 72 hours to read the entire Bible. What is that, three days? No, I mean, I know you couldn't do it for three days straight. 
I've been told that if you read your Bible 15 minutes a day, you will read the entire Bible through in a year. How many of you can do that? How many of you can squeeze out 15 minutes? I've been told, I mean, so you said, well, wait, I'm not a very fast reader. Okay. Maybe it takes you 30 minutes. So read for 30 minutes. You'll still be done in a year. Consider that there are 8,760 hours in a year. And the question is simply, can you afford to spend 72 hours of those to read through the word of God? word of God whom you claim to love. Charles Spurgeon, and I'll end with this, said this, edification is a grand defense against the assaults of skeptics and heretics. These prey upon ignorant and unestablished, but fail to overthrow those who are rooted and grounded in the truth. If this be so, then let us be a people of the book intent, resolved to know God better through his word so that we might build. Why? Why why am I saying all of this? This is what we need to do. This is a call to Hope Community Bible Church. We need to be building up one another in the most holy faith. That's a task that is called for each one of us. From the youngest of the believers to the oldest of the believers, you are to be in the book reading. And then I'm going to add this one thing. It's not enough to read. It's not enough to examine. Then you must share. You must communicate. Here's what God's word has. This is what I've learned this week in God's word. Beloved, we need to take time. We One of the, the bad things about our Bible studies, I'm off the cuff right now, so this may come out wrong. But here's one of the bad things about our Bible studies. We go to a Bible study expecting someone else to have been prepared to give to us God's word. Grateful for those people. But you should be preparing yourself to go to those meetings and to build them up by saying, I've read these things too. I've been preparing too. I'm here to share and communicate. And as you're building me up, I want to build you up. So don't think coming to church or coming to a Bible study means that you're off the hook. No, you prepare, you read, and you be one of those people building building ourselves up in the most holy faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you have called us to be your people, called us to be those who would be your spokespersons, each and every one in this room, if they know Jesus Christ, is to be a proclaimer, to be a witness, to give testimony of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done to save their souls and the, and the wonders of the word of God that proclaim all of these truths. Father, I pray that you would enable us to be builders, those who build up one another in this the most holy faith. And Father, I pray for those who think, I don't even know if I know the God of the Bible, if I know who Jesus Christ is. I've heard about him. I pray, Father, that today would be the day that you open their eyes to behold the truth, that if they would be part of the church, if they would be part of this building project, they must first come to know Jesus. They must first confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead in order to be the satisfaction for their sins so that by believing on him, he will transform them and give them a new heart, a heart that longs to know God and to make God known. Father, I pray that you would do that work. Take our lives and let them be consecrated unto you. We ask and pray in Jesus' name.